Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxell Podcast. My name is Evan Troxell. And in this episode of the podcast, I welcome back Anthony Frosto Robledo from Architosh.com. And the reason Anthony's back on the show is because the day that this episode comes out, Tuesday, November 10th, is also the day of Apple's latest presentation to the public entitled One More Thing. And I couldn't think of anybody better than Anthony to have on the show to talk about what we think Apple will present and also potentially release as far as hardware and software goes today, November 10th, 2020. Anthony is a senior associate at Boston-based firm Morehouse McDonald Architects, and he is also the editor-in-chief at Architosh.com. So we cover a lot of ground in this episode. It's a little bit longer than a usual episode, but it's also a bit more fun. A lot of insight thrown around on this one because we've both been Apple and Mac users for such a long time. And Anthony has a lot of insight because of the editorial that he does over at Architosh. So there's links to everything that we talk about in the show notes for this episode. So if you want to find out more about anything that we're talking about, please go to trxl.co slash podcast, or those links should also show up in the show notes for this episode in your favorite podcast player. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Anthony Frosto Robledo. Anthony, welcome back to the show. You are officially the first guest with a repeat on this show, and I hope I hope we can do this more often because this the topic that we're here to talk about today is one of my favorite things, and I don't really get to talk about this with many other people. So, uh, and and you are like the go to person that I think about when it comes to Apple stuff. So, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm on the West Coast. You're on the East Coast. We're recording this uh, two days before the. Apple event, which is officially titled, and I this may be totally, they've already, they're jumping the shark, is you know, one more thing, which is a famous Apple saying that Steve Jobs had used throughout his history at, at Apple and it kind of became these sacred words that whenever you heard those words, it was going to be really good. So uh, it's going to be fun having this conversation kind of pontificating about what's right around the corner here. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And you're right. Those words, when Steve said them, something big was coming. Yeah. And there's a huge history kind of behind that. I actually went back and looked to see what some of the things that they announced when using the the, the term one more thing. And just so everybody knows, that's the official uh, like little phrase that came out on the invitation to, I got an email um, that said, you know, join us on the morning of November 10th, and the title of the event is One More Thing, um, which typically was always just kind of this this thing that got said at the end of a presentation when you thought the presentation was already over. And then he would say, you know, he'd pull another rabbit out of his hat and say, oh, there's one more thing. And that one more thing was typically kind of an incredible thing. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, what were some of the uh, going back? Because that's, you know, like, 
I'm trying to remember just, yeah, I was at the original iPhone launch. Um, I'm not sure if you used it there. I'm curious what you found. I I went back and looked and just to say that, you know, Steve was obviously kind of a a master of the keynote presentation. And, and that was like where he kind of, he used a keynote presentation as his canvas. If you think of him as an artist, I think it was, it was really kind of the master salesmen they they've talked about the the rea- reality distortion field that Steve had right where where he could seemingly bend at his will reality and make you believe whatever he was talking about and presenting um but but he he would typically conclude you know an event and say oh yeah you know there's one more thing and just off the cuff like make it seem like no big deal um and some of the things that he he did launch that way um, were things like the the first airport base station, um, which at that point, you know, you had to actually purchase a separate card and install it into your laptop so that you could be wireless. But it was it was incredible, right? Like nobody had wireless laptops yet. And mm-hmm. so it was like, oh, yeah, there's just one more thing. It's going to make you so that you can connect to the Internet and not be plugged into an Ethernet jack, which was like, right. whoa. Other things like the G4 Cube was a one more thing, um, you know, flop as a as a computer overall, but not nobody knew that yet. I mean, it was this kind of pursuit that Steve personally had because he had developed the next cube, right, and right. released it once he came back to Apple, and it was this gorgeous industrial design, very small footprint of a computer iTunes for Windows <laughs> was one of the things that showed up in the list, uh, which was he he quoted he he said it's the best Windows app ever written. <laughs> oh, that sounds like Steve. Yeah, yeah, totally right. That there's that reality <laughs> distortion field. Uh, the U2 iPod. I don't think that the actual iPod itself, but actually having U2 join the stage when they revealed it um, mm-hmm. was was a one more thing. FaceTime video calling. So it wasn't always like a groundbreaking device. Um, sometimes it was hardware, sometimes it was software, but it was always kind of thrilling to, to mm-hmm. go through that. So so what do you think just from big picture when Apple puts one more thing on the invitation? What do you just think about that in general? I always usually think it's going to be quite thrilling. Yeah, so I agree with you there. It's interesting to hear that list. Um, I'm sure if we did... Uh, were to dig deeper, we would find maybe some other examples. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, it's been a long time, obviously, since Steve has been around. And so they don't use that that phrase that often. Yeah. But in this case, Apple has released, you know, such a flurry of wonderful updates. And we all know that the Apple Silicon is coming for Macs. And what I've been thinking lately is, is, how dramatic could this be? Mm-hmm. Because um, the rumor mill or the you know, writing that's leading up to this event is suggesting that they're not necessarily going to do anything dramatic with form factors for some of these uh, laptops that they're going to introduce Apple Silicon in, and which is kind of shocking on some on some level that they wouldn't. But I think if we go back and think about when they went from PowerPC to Intel. I don't recall if there was a dramatic change in form factor for the introduction of that chip change as well. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about some of the previous transitions because I've personally been through the the two that happened previously. Um, my first 
Mac that I bought myself in college in architecture school was a Power PC. It was a Power Mac seventy one hundred, and I remember buying software with the sticker on the box that said, you know, updated for Power PC,、mm-hmm. and. I remember, you know, when they switched away from the Motorola chips and went with IBM to kind of come up with this whole new PowerPC line of chips and why they did that. Obviously, even the PowerPC to Intel transition.、Um, I think it's interesting to think about the position that Apple was in at both of those times, and really not in a position that they are in today of being able to kind of. Call the shots. They weren't in a position of power when it came to their, you know, how those transitions went. I think it was more of a survival technique back in those times. They might、mm-hmm. think of it similarly to that today, but I think it's more about control now, right? Like Apple has definitely shown that they always want to be in control of the hardware and the software and everything that they possibly can get their hands on because they design the entire experience. Right. Right. I definitely agree with the transition to Intel as being a. A case where they were maybe not in the strongest position they could be in.、Um, you know, there were rumors of next generation power PC chips、um, that never came to fruition. That's and, right. And <laughs>、um, we wrote about that a lot、um, at the time at Architosh, and we actually had a very good connection to someone at Motorola, so we knew about the mythical eleven chip. And、in fact, I was even sent a blueprint of that chip design, which、wow. I was too afraid to publish because I thought, well, if I publish that, Steve will—they'll come after me big time. And I, <laughs> I didn't want to—I didn't want to risk it. <laughs> I just so I thought、I'll, I could publish it later when it's safer to publish it.、Um, I've actually never published it, but if I recall correctly, that processor was. Active in the in the Boston metro market somewhere being tested, and I had a friend who knew a friend who whose company had one, and、um, they were saying it was incredibly fast and it would blow blow away anything that the that Intel had at the time, but it was running very hot, and of course the mythical eleven chip just never materialized, and、um, you know it wasn't much. Longer that we ended up moving to to Intel, Apple moved、uh, to Intel, and that was, I think that was a good move、um, because what it did,、uh, and this is a similar thing with this transition, is it opened up a whole world of opportunity for applications. Yeah, that that's a great story, man. I, I can't believe you've never published that. That would be、uh, fascinating to see. I'm sure for a lot of people. At one point, I keep telling myself, at some point, I'll I'll I'll. Pull that up, and I will publish it. But、the、memoirs of、uh, Arkatosh. I mean, that's when. That's yeah, when you pull that exactly. <laughs> that's awesome. I was actually working at Apple during the the transition to Intel, and I had per- used my employee discount to purchase like a dual processor G five tower. You know, the first、mm-hmm. cheese grater,、um, as they're called, and. That computer that I had actually had quite a few problems throughout its its、uh, short life because what happened was the logic board just kept going bad and and at one point you know the geniuses were like man I don't and, and it, for those who don't know the geniuses were are is an actual title of a of a role in the Apple Store、um, sure at the Genius Bar and they were like man like I, I'm sorry like we've had your computer for weeks and weeks and weeks now like that doesn't normally happen we're not sure what's going on and 
like shortly after I purchased this computer, they actually did roll, start to roll out the Intel machines. And at one point, they finally just said, okay, we've got to send this computer back to headquarters or wherever they were, they were shipping them to to actually get, get something swapped out. And they shipped me back a quad-core Xeon instead. And I was thrilled. <laughs> I just went from a dual processor G5, and that was probably two and a half gigahertz. And like you said, there was these rumored, like higher powered, you know, three gigahertz machines that just never came out. There was also like the G5 PowerBook was rumored forever. And mm-hmm. I think it was probably a similar issue with heat that, you know, the enclosure just couldn't handle it. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so when they shipped me back, obviously the desktop computers were another story. And uh, when they shipped me back a quad Xeon, that machine uh, just smoked the previous computer that it replaced. And that was a huge move for them. And I don't think that people really understood it when they made the announcement. But once we started seeing what the applications could do and how Apple was taking the same internals that you could find in other, you know, Wintel brands and make smoke and fast computers out of it, it was like, okay. I, I get it now. It was it was really worth kind of the the painful transition that the developers ultimately had to go through to switch their software over. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a that's a good story. And actually, you jogged my memory. There, what I uh, when I was talking about the mythical uh, eleven chip, that was actually a Motorola the chip. Motorola chip. Yeah. And I realized now, um, just thinking about it, that Apple kind of did a transition within their architecture where they were heavily more favored to get processors from Motorola. And at that point where they couldn't move to the next level, mm-hmm. I believe is when they went to IBM yep. in the G5. Right. Uh, and that was a big, that was a big step change. Yeah. Yeah. But that was huge. like you, I had the first, um, I went to the very first transition as an Apple uh, user. Mm-hmm. And that was with the power PC 7,100. I had that machine as well. And, I think on some level, I'm hoping that this transition will be similar to that one in the sense that there's a clear step change in performance. Because that was a, when the PowerPC came out, there was, you know, a noticeable performance advantage from the previous uh, Macs, uh, as well as it really put the heat on the competition. Yeah. And I'm hoping that that's what happens this time. I don't think they would do it if they, if that isn't exactly what's going to happen. I honestly think that. The only reason that they're doing this now is because they have something that is going to seriously blow people away. Because if they couldn't do it, they would just wait. There's nothing technically wrong with the place and the position that they're in now with the Intel chips, with mm-hmm. the new Mac Pro, for instance. I mean, it's a up to 28 cores. I mean, it is pretty incredible. But I we've we've been seeing the writing on the wall for several years now where certain computers were not getting updated because... Intel was dropping the ball. And I feel like like now it's just because, and I think I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about iPhone and iPad because that's how mm-hmm. we got where we're going to go. Right. And so I, I don't want to jump right to the predictions quite yet, but this little history lesson here and kind of seeing how they've done it before, I think is super interesting. And again, I don't think that they're going to announce anything that doesn't completely blow the competition out of the water um, because they they could honestly they could just wait and do that right. Um, so I think it but now is the right time for them to do that. Right. It's interesting to me to e- even look at just the recent earnings call and how the Mac had its biggest quarter ever right b- 
before they're making this transition, which is pretty incredible. I would have thought a lot more people would be waiting. And I think the super nerds like us are to buy a new Mac. But I think, you know, obviously COVID and stuff probably played a big part in that. Um, mm-hmm. But but it's really interesting to see right now that the Mac is actually stronger than it's ever been. Yeah, I saw that too. And uh, this, the, I think it's like they made, they made $9 billion. Yeah. Uh, like they didn't, <laughs> for they the didn't beat the previous quarter. Not I'm not talking like timeline previous quarter, but the previous largest quarter ever for Max. They beat it by a lot. It was like... Seven billion or seven and a half or something. They wow. beat it by over a billion dollars. Yeah, that's incredible. And I, I'm sure a lot of those COVID-driven. You know, the computer makers have been doing really well because of COVID. Uh, the need to transition to work work from home has meant all kinds of computers need to be purchased to have the you know the utility to work from home. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it probably even more than that is that you can't like at home. Typically, people have shared computers over time, and now you just can't. Everybody's got to have their own because of yeah. online classes and work. And I, I've got five Macs in rotation here because of you know the work my wife's doing. The kids are in school all the time. We've got a couple of iPads. You know, depending on if someone needs to move to a different room, and they they're on you know one of the machines is an old Mac Mini. So. I think that part of it is that, you know, they're just like, all of a sudden we need more computers in the house. <laughs> right. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting too, is that this period on Intel outlasts the period on PowerPC, which is also kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how time flies. And yet here we are, and there's been a decade of progress with, you know, the ARM processors and Apple's own silicone and, and the iOS devices. Yeah, so let's talk about iOS devices because and I don't want to like go through the whole history like we just did of of this stuff, but I mean obviously the these are indicators of what what we're potentially going to see. Um mm-hmm. and I think there's a couple of interesting caveats about the iOS devices that we we see, but I I want bef- before we jump into that, like what do you, as far as architecture goes and kind of reframing this conversation about why this matters on this show and and to your audience as well is like, so what is it about iOS devices do you think that really make them fit into the architect's toolbox? Well, I think, well, let's start with the iPad. So I think the iPads have had an immediate uh, usefulness in the construction market. Mm-hmm. And you see them everywhere on construction sites. And that's been the case for a long, long time now. I know that there are, there are lots of good applications out there in the AC space that also produce an Android version. Mm-hmm. And I also know from traveling to conferences around the world that in certain countries, uh, certain parts of the world, Android is actually quite strong in the construction market. But here in the United States, it states it's not nearly as strong as iOS. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I noticed in the literature when the latest iPhones came out with the A14 Bionic chip is they were talking about how much more powerful their processors are now compared to their rivals. Mm. Um, I think that matters greatly when you're trying to look at BIM models on site, whether it's a, a smaller iPad or one of the big iPad Pros. You, you're gonna, you're still gonna run in that same, this, the same problem we run, we run at at the office, which is how to move all this geometry around uh, as quickly as possible, so that mm. we can get to the work that we're trying to get done. Yeah, and and it's interesting to think about the applications that people are using on iPad 
you know, there's Bluebeam Review, uh, although I don't believe that that's been updated in quite a while. But there's the BIMX application from the Archicad folks, which is amazingly fluid with a lot of geometry. Like you're talking about a BIM model, which is has a lot more in it than a typical 3D model of mm-hmm. similar geometry because of all the metadata attached, all the properties for each element obviously the ability to cut sections on the fly and kind of fly around the building and do sun shadow studies, things like that. They're, they're moving a lot of information around and it has to be super responsive. Yeah, I agree. And, um, with the Graphisoft product that you just mentioned, um, BIMX, uh, when they showed their latest version of that, they introduced, uh, the capacity to stream the geometry data to uh, in that device. So you're able to, to open up even the largest um, of big buildings mm. and, uh, and they have, you know, a much more robust capacity now to bring in, you know, your level of detail can go up dramatically uh, when you have the ability to have that kind of firepower in a mobile device. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the issue with all of this too, is that, um, in the transition uh, is that the core technology behind 3D geometry applications has to be modernized to deal with multi-cores. And, you know, we're hearing a lot about that uh, lately that that came up with the Revit um, open letter. Mm-hmm. We all know that the tools in the AC space for architects are highly single threaded, but so are a lot of the, core technology behind them mm-hmm. like parasolid um parasolid is uh the dominant modeling kernel out there and it's not entirely single threaded it's actually multi-threaded but it, but if you talk to developers they'll tell you that it's not as multi-threaded as they would like it to be mm. so recently i spoke to them and um and to ask them about that and they were they were saying that they're working on this very vigorously um, and they will never be able to take their geometry kernels entirely multi-threaded because there's certain calculations that just have to work that has that have to work in series mm-hmm. uh, in sequence. Um, but they're doing everything they can. And one of the things that I, that led that we led to in that conversation with the Parasol folks was, well, what about um, Parasolid on iOS, mm-hmm. and 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 what about Parasolid? On, in preparation for uh, Mac OS on, on, on the ARM architecture. And thankfully, you know, there's been developers in the CAD space have already pushed for having that particular geometry kernel on iOS because uh, if it wasn't there, we might be waiting longer for some key applications in the AC space mm-hmm. to arrive on the, uh, the new Macs that are coming. Um, but it's already there uh, and powering some not- notable um, CAD tools on iOS like Shaper 3D. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that I asked them was, how long did it take you to port Parasol to um, the iOS platform? And they said it was about nine to uh, about nine months, six to nine months, uh, closer to nine. And part of the reason why it took them so long wasn't actually the code work to get it over to that operating system, but the infrastructure changed to test it um, because 
these companies, um, when they're testing, whether they're, you're, you're going into a company like AMD and looking at how they test their graphics cards, you know, basically around the clock, or you're talking about a geometry kernel like Parasol, they're doing um, tests every day to the order of like 90,000 tests in 24-hour period. Um, in fact, they do 4 million tests. Parasol does 4 million tests a day. Um, and that is just an, an enormous amount of testing. And a lot of the tests are built into testing suites that they've developed themselves. But there's a tremendous amount that are actual smaller application-specific tests. And so they just have tons of equipment, like hundreds and hundreds of machines in these large rooms. And um, they monitor these tests and they get them to be automated. And they just run them around the clock. And then they have their own tools, software tools to to spit out results and check for when there's errors and then trace down those errors. So one where I'm going with this is that it took them six to nine months to move the geometry kernel to iOS, but a big part of it was getting set up to actually test something like an iPhone or an iPad Mm. when they're used to having, you know, workstation and desktop machines in their environment. So it was a different kind of, you know, imagine a room with all kinds of PCs in it, and then imagine trying to adapt that room for, you know, hundreds of iPads, uh, all running different suites of tests. So um, that was an infrastructure change that they said they don't have to make this time when they're moving to basically supporting ARM in Mac West, because the form factor is going to be going back to desktops. I mean, it is desktops now. That's what Macs are. They're either, they either sit on your desk as a mobile or they're, they're an iPad, they're, you know, your iMac or something. Right. So that's good. And that means that they could be ready now. And we may see something um, in two days that actually has the parasolid model modeling kernel behind it. Nice. Yeah. I, I, I that is a, a big deal. I, I, like you're talking about just because that investment that these companies have to make to do a change like this can be enormous. I could imagine for, for some companies that have strictly been developing for the desktop for so long, like you were saying, the workstation level stuff, it, it's going to be a huge investment to for them to switch over. And that, I think that we've seen that in the past, right? When these tr- other transitions have happened where the larger companies were a little bit slower to get there unless Apple had been working with them for quite a long time in advance so that they could show it off at the keynote. But I, I kind of think we, we probably want to save a little bit of this episode to, to, to guess at what some of those things they might be showing off at the keynote software wise could be. I think that could be kind of fun. Sure. Absolutely. So I, I, before we jump into software and, and predictions, I, I, some of the other really compelling stuff about iOS devices to me as an architect are really boils down to, two things and and on ipad specifically uh it's the the pencil support because you know for some age of architects we that's how we learned how to do it and it's a communication device that cannot be replicated with modeling it can't be replicated with the keyboard it can't be replicated any other way you want to be able to sketch and communicate ideas that way it really is the first in class way to do it because I've used some of the Microsoft Surface devices and it is just not the same. It's interesting. You've seen that difference. I I've talked to people at Autodesk who like the Microsoft Surface products and have tried iOS and they 
they, they see them as, as similar, but yeah. that's interesting to hear your point of view. Um, I think it has to, comes back to like that ProMotion display. It comes back to the 120 frames per second, the 120 mm-hmm. hertz that it's capturing right. at, where it's just like it is right under the stylus the whole time without any lag or pause or anything like that. That's to me what makes the actual difference. Right. It gives you that complete illusion that it's actually you're drawing with a real pencil. Right. I, I think the pencil is important, and it's um, it's 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 the main input device for Shaper 3D's product, uh, which is a serious CAD tool. While they see it as a serious professional modeling tool that mm-hmm. will become more of a CAD tool as it moves forward. And recently, when I spoke to them in the summer about it, I asked them uh, the question: do, do you do you think that Apple can do more with the pencil? And they said no. And they thought that it was for what their users were using it for in their application, that it was sort of, you know, mm. uh, crossing all the boxes. Mm. And I was surprised to hear that. And it's been a while since I touched an application on an, on an iPad and worked with a pencil. I, I have explored it. I was, like you said, I mean, this is as an architect, we're, we're used to sketching and drawing and mm. that's how we learn. And that's how we think, think through issues. And, um, so I instantly jumped into the iPad with the pencil when it first came out. Right. And I, I actually love it for doing illustration work because some beautiful drawing tools and, and that, that allow you to do kind of watercolor like work. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you can really use it as a presentation uh, creation device now um, and, and create stunning artwork for, for architecture. Um, and there's a whole range of drawing apps out there that can do that. Um, it will be interesting to see as these tools now that are written for iOS that are drawing tools that work with the styles, will those developers try to bring them over to the new Macs? Um, I, from when I'm talking developers to go from iOS to an iOS um, situation to the Mac OS situation with ARM, with the ARM based chips in them, mm-hmm. or Apple silicone. It's really almost like a push of a button. It, there's there's work to be done, but it's incredibly simple for a lot of products. Um, so I think one of the things that we're going to really enjoy about what they're going to show us on Tuesday is that we're going to we're going to see a lot of interesting apps. And I guess the question is, will the pencil have some role? For example, yeah. you know, there's that little touch device that you can get as an extra for your, your Macs, if you, like if for your iPad, for example, not for your iPad, your iMac. Um, and if you want to do touch input, you can, you can, you can use that, that, that accessory. Um, and I'm curious what will happen to, um, with just the trackpad on mobiles and the touch bar, if we will see any kinds of improvements there as well. And, and that, I, I don't know if, I'm just curious to see what what might happen there. What are your thoughts? Well, I want to save that because I I have similar questions as well. I mean, we've seen the things that Microsoft's come out with, like the Surface Studio, um, Mm -hmm. where it's like a convertible kind of large screen. It's a 28-inch flat panel that can be a monitor, but you can also pull it down like a drafting board. And I kind of wonder if, if we have something like that in store for us, Apple enthusiasts, in the future as well. Um, 
I think I think before we go before we go there, the last thing I wanted to talk about on iOS that as an architect really makes me kind of wonder if this could also work its way into the the desktop lineup is the role that the camera plays. Like for me, that's always the biggest reason to upgrade a phone is because of the Mm -hmm. camera. That is by far the most dominant use that I have with the device um, that, that occupies so much of our time every day already. Um, That is by far the biggest one. And, and it's not just that you're using it to capture, but that you're also using it to share. And the reason I started out with like that, that the Apple pencil is it's actually one of the biggest reasons keeping me from upgrading this year is I still really want Apple Pencil support on the iPhone um, because I do have an iPad Pro and I do communicate through sketching as an architect. I would love to be able to do that on a smaller device that's in my pocket all the time. Um, but but the reason I, I, I am so kind of torn is I love the camera upgrades year over year and I don't buy a new phone every year. I think that's lunacy if you do <laughs> because it's so, such right, an expensive okay. device. But... When they put LiDAR into the iPad Pro uh, mm-hmm. earlier this year, and now they've got it in the iPhone 12 Pro as well, I kind of wonder, you know, we're seeing a lot of these kind of mobile-first things that that do really affect kind of the architect's toolbox. I don't know that it would ever make sense to put LiDAR into a, a Mac, but... Um, we're already seeing the iPhone as a peripheral to our Macs, right? We're seeing them, you can use them, you can right-click in a Word document, and you can mm-hmm. say, like, scan a picture from my iPhone's camera right now, which is incredible. We're seeing the the airdrop and the handoff, and we're seeing lots of interaction. I don't really know what other things they could do there, but if they're all running the same underlying hardware there might be things going on that we can't even imagine that they could do and i immediately start thinking about what could they do with lidar we're seeing apple moving towards this idea of an ar like that being a big part of what they're doing right we've we've all heard the rumors about the the apple glasses potentially um and obviously lidar i think could have huge implications on the precision of augmented reality Mm -hmm. um so so now thinking about my phone as like a, a peripheral to my Mac that could have potentially way more performance um, and ability to capture through this mobile device that I could walk around a room with and generate a model on the fly with textures and, and everything, um, I, could, I could start to see how that could be really interesting for architects. No, I, I agree uh, as well with that. And uh, that's a really great uh, observation. I mean, th- I think the LiDAR is a big, a big aspect of how the Apple platform can benefit AAC folks. Uh, I see also, you know, the usefulness in, in not just creating models from your phone, but just as a measurement device. Mm-hmm. And there's so much usefulness um, for that kind of thing, like on the construction site. So. Uh, I'm really excited about that, and of course, the AR improvements that were that are rumored and the ones that we we already have. And I guess you know, uh, I guess what you're talking about is being able to capture something, I guess, remotely, and then bring it back to the office. And it, now your now your phone's an accessory to your Mac, 
uh, and you could then transfer that data um, in some kind of quick way. I could see it even where it, you know, you're hooked up to iCloud and you're out on a site and you're capturing stuff. It's processing it through iCloud and pushing it to your Mac that that's sitting in your office or wherever that is. And it just being instantly available, right. With, with these different technologies that we're seeing where, you know, even with, with handoff or, or iCloud, it's just so available. It just seems like your data can be anywhere and everywhere all at the same time. Now Um, it seems like nobody's better positioned to do something like that than Apple is. Mm -hmm. What's exciting about the Apple Silicon change is that they can build specialized components on their chips like the neural engine mm-hmm. for a whole range of things that emerge as important to them. Absolutely. Um, and that, that's, that's really the groundbreaking part of all of this is that um, for the first time, there's going to be a platform company that, well, it's not the first time because obviously people like Sun and HP have been, they used to create their own processors and put them in workstations for their own Unix operating systems. But you know, it's going to be something that gives Apple an advantage over their immediate competitors, namely Google and Microsoft, and having this full stack, which is an extension of the vertical stack they've always boasted of, right? Mm. Um, software and har- the marriage of software and hardware. But this is deeper because uh, in the past they didn't have, they weren't the designer of their CPUs and their GPUs, but now they are, and that's that's um, that's really. I think something that can be game changing for the platform, um, not just not just on a performance level, but different kinds of functionalities that could emerge. And I, I, I just I don't know what they will be, but um, one can imagine. And um, I'm excited to talk too about you know where machine learning can go on the Mac OS, and they see uh, app space as well because we've already seen some exciting machine learning or AI input into the BIM market. Um, and I think I mentioned that last time when we talked. Yeah. I think if you, if you just kind of, we just look at the camera app and with the computational photography that's going on, um, that to me is again, like nobody saw that coming. Nobody was asking for it, but it's what makes this phone such a viable camera against really large censored cameras, right? Because of what they can do with machine learning with the Mm -hmm. neural engine, right? Where they're taking, you know, a series of photographs and finding detail where detail can be found, uh, merging those together and making, you know, I've heard it referenced as like the Christmas sweater type of photo where it's like this incredible detail uh, that you can never capture with a single capture on a sensor. Um, But because of the computational photography, because they're using machine learning to scan through the image and look for those areas where extra detail can be found, it it makes it so you can do some pretty incredible things and and earlier you talked about um, field measuring right and I I don't know if I wanted to ask you if you had used the measuring app that Apple puts on their phones um, for that augmented reality measuring. I have not used it in a professional sense, but I have tinkered. Yeah, same with yeah. me. I, I have yeah. tinkered with it too, and it's it actually works really well. But I could imagine now with the addition of lidar, for instance, and. For those architects out there who are like, yeah, I, I keep hearing buzzword about AR and stuff. Well, there there actually is some use for it now. It's pretty like gimmicky or you know something worth tinkering with just so that you understand what it can do because it is it's a fun demo for sure and it it is mm-hmm. really well 
it does a good job with with simple measurements and things like that, but you still have to be there to see that stuff. Whereas I think with the LIDAR and the ability ability for it to capture and send and share, and now I could field measure again when I'm back in my office and not have to actually be on site to do it, that kind of thing could be game-changing for the built environment as things are going through construction, for instance. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely agree. And, um, I mean, your comments about the, f- the photography uh, in particular and how you're using basically machine learning and software um, to sort of match up, match the the capabilities of larger sensors and more professional um, hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, this get this this touches on disruption, right? Which yeah. I know you gave a talk, um, and I've watched it um, on disruption, uh, te- technological disruption, and and you made the point that, you know, one of the key definers of disruption is it has to be cheap and it's usually inferior, right? Mm-hmm. So on some level, I remember when I first, uh, I don't know which model of uh, iPhone it was, but when I started playing around with the ability to zoom into photos and obviously that was using software to do that rather than having a real telephoto lens, mm-hmm. I thought, well, this is completely inferior to what would happen if I had a real lens doing this work, but it wasn't, wasn't terrible, right? It was, it could pass. Um, right. As long as you weren't trying to stretch it too far, it can pass for various situations. Now we're seeing machine learning take a, take a pass at, yes. <laughs> um, at this kind of work and do a phenomenal job at tightening up and getting things um, incredibly crisp. And um, uh, it's just really remarkable what, what can be done now. And so Apple's achieving things with less costly technology that, and I think this, that's one of the key disruption points of what they're doing. Yeah. One of the, one of the early kind of examples of disruption theory, which I'll put a link to that talk in my show notes so people can check it out. But, you know, a lot of people thought the iPhone because of the name iPhone, it was coming to quote unquote, disrupt the phone market. Um, when in fact it didn't do that at all, right? Um, it, it was a high cost item. It wasn't a low cost item, but it was kind of a red herring just because of the name. It really came and disrupted computing. It, it, it disrupted mobile computing in a huge way that nobody who was building mobile computers before that saw coming. Um, right. and so that's really where the, the kind of stuff that we're talking about even now with Apple using computation and even applications on the desktop are using uh, machine learning to denoise images or to sharpen images that could never be done before on on chip in a camera. Um, that's where, you know, nobody sees that stuff coming. And, and it's basically free, right? You, you can update your phone every year and get the best version of that. And maybe it does it even faster and you don't have to wait as long. But it's the same sensor as before. It's all being done through software now. And I, and like you're saying, Apple's doing that with additional chips that they're including on Apple Silicon to be able to do that. Uh, but because they're controlling the whole stack here, they're the ones thinking about this kind of thing and making it available to consumers. I, I think it's just there's there's stuff that's going to happen like that that we are really not aware of yet. And I think these are the things that are kind of disruptive, but they don't seem like it. Like AR measuring right now feels like a toy. 
But you better learn how it works now because when it's serious, like you want to be someone who is understands how it works and you want to be really good at it so that you're are positioned as an expert when that happens. Yeah, no. And and that was another aspect of the you know, whole disruption theory, uh, Clayton Christensen's theory and definition of disruption is that these things are often referred to as toys because yes. they don't do as well as the real professional products, but they're encroaching on them and they and they're they have a steeper improvement curve. And they don't have the same audience, right? Like they're 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 aimed at a different audience and they add features over time which slowly chips away at that audience that is the existing incumbent's audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well think about drones. The drones is another, you know, thing when they first emerged. It wasn't clear what these were really for. Were they toys for teenage boys to tinker around with or you know, it wasn't clear that they were for certain types of the, uh, certain sectors of the market. And look at them now; they are they have found their place in all kinds of industrial sectors. And now you can be a qualified pilot for a drone, and it's like a real profession. And it's just uh, remarkable how quickly that whole evolution uh, of drone technology happened. I, I was teaching a class at our local university architecture program and it was on emerging technology and by the end of the class one of my students had gotten his drone pilot's license because right. we had done a, a we had done a lecture on it and he was so enamored with it i don't know if he had already had exposure to drones or not but he realized that he could set up a business basically overnight mm-hmm. to be able to fly in airspace that most people couldn't by having his license and offer right. that as a service to architects. And in my job, what I was thinking the whole time was, I'm just going to basically expose these students to all of the different aspects that technology is enabling in AEC. Um, Because I think when, you know, when we went to school, you were going to become an architect and you were either going to have a design role or a technical role or a management role. And nowadays that is not the case at all. There Mm -hmm. are many, many, many roles that people could fulfill and you don't have to be an architect to work on amazing projects. Um, and I think, I think it is seriously changing our profession. And technologies like drones are a big piece of that because they are enabling a point of view that we never had before. For people to look at our buildings, for people to experience our buildings, for ways for goods and services to be delivered to those buildings. Um, mm-hmm. It could be that you know drones are going to get a lot bigger and they're going to start carrying people around. And now who cares that your front entry is on the ground level anymore? It doesn't need to be potentially, right? This could change architecture, I guess, is what I'm saying. So it's it's really kind of fascinating to see these things start out as, and now you can buy drones on Amazon for twenty bucks, right? Because they are they do have the toy level stuff, but they are serious business as well. Yeah, it's a it's a technology that's really scaled from toy yeah. to serious industrial production. And, you know, it's like a lot of emerging tools. It's something that is giving uh, the AC industry increasing flexibility in production, mm-hmm. uh, which is the larger thing that I think is happening within uh, the AC industry in terms of technical disruption. But back to disruption and the Apple silicone, I mean, isn't it something that these processors, when they were, you know, originally the ARM processors, when they were originally um, developed a long time ago, they were targeting low watt 
applications right. and uh, and mobile phones was one of them and that was one of several it became the dominant one i think um and i remember reading a time years ago this is probably like 15 years ago even pre-iphone when you know everyone had their fancy blackberries and stuff like that but the discussion was you know what was going to happen to processors in these mobile devices as times went on mm-hmm. and they've only gotten more powerful as and at a faster rate than desktop processors and server processors and it's like the curves on the diagram you showed in your in your talk on disruption if, if you're just on a steeper a steeper incline you're going to eventually surpass someone at some point right and and i think basically on tuesday we're going to see that little that that intersection point i totally agree yeah, and, and if you think about the constraints that iOS chip designers have had until now, there's two big ones that I can think of, and that is, number one, they've almost entirely been for battery-powered devices, right? Mm-hmm. I think the only exception there is really like Apple TV and the latest developer unit, right, that they've just shipped in an old in the, the Mac Mini enclosure, for developers to kind of start making this transition with their applications. So, I mean, those, and those to me really don't count, right? They've, they've always been developed for iPads and iPhones. And sometimes the iPad comes out with the more powerful chip first. Sometimes the iPhone comes out with the more powerful chip first. And what we're seeing in performance is their single core performance right now is like the fastest that Apple makes, even compared to every other Mac that they make. Mm -hmm. So, Heat has been another big constraint, and they've simply been able to defy physics, it seems, with the speeds that we're talking about and not having any active cooling in these enclosures. So Mm -hmm. to me, those two constraints are gone. They're talking about putting these in max now. So imagine what could be done, because I'm sure they talk about battery every single day in the design studio when they're talking Mm -hmm. about this stuff. And now somebody's going in after 10 years, 10 plus years and saying, well, you're going to be able to plug this thing in and you're going to be able to add fans. That's why I think your statement about we're, we're going to see this inflection point is it's going to be incredible because those aren't constraints for this new type of computer that we're talking about. Yeah, I know. And, uh, you know, it's, I've been thinking about this a lot on um, your, your, and you're talking about what's known as the thermal design power, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is thermal envelope um, that you're trying to deal with a certain amount of heat uh, from wattage that's running through the maximum wattage can run through a system or a chip. I mean, we're talking about the Bionic is a six watt device and that's the maximum uh, wattage. That's its peak. And I think the chips in the latest, the the i7s and the latest MacBook Pros are 28. I mean, that's a 4x multiple. Yeah. Um, and I, I understand that's the multiple on their peaks, and things are not always running at peak. That we have tur- turbo boost mode, and we have a turbo boost mode, or our gigahertz, and then we have this rating that's a lot less than that, but. You know, in our industry, when we're pushing around 3D models, BIM models, and, and large drawings and illustrative renderings and so forth, we're we're hitting that that those peaks a lot. I mean, we're generally we need to throw um, so much uh, at the processor all day long, and uh, and we wait a lot for yeah. our, our work to be done. Right. So, 
I really wonder what they're going to do if they're going to take advantage of the fact that these uh, TDPs are so low and they're going to just design a much bigger ARM chip for the Macs? Or is the chip going to be only marginally larger and they're going to boast about the fact that the battery life is just, you know, uh, hours and hours and hours better than anything you can get on Intel and they're fanless and, of course, they can be much thinner and smaller. And we, we already know that's a given. Apple's always going to go thinner and smaller with things. Uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> that's their addiction. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to see something of both. I mean, we could start to get into the prediction side of things. Um, Jason Snell over at the Six Colors website did post a an interesting post where he did some spreadsheeting and put in some some Geekbench scores. And, you know, he was basically pontificating on what if... I think I think he said that the newest iPad is a four core um, performance cores, what they call them, and so he was saying he he heard a rumor that there's an eight core under development, and so kind of taking that into account and and you, doing some math, he was saying that you know and and my machine, my main machine that I use every day, and this I love this machine, it's a six sixteen inch MacBook Pro, um, I think it's the best Mac that I've ever used, and Basically, you know, if if they take this kind of eight performance core system and put it up, it'll blow my 16-inch MacBook out of the water and mm-hmm. and basically be somewhere between the fastest iMac Pro and the top of the line Mac Pro, which is 28 core Xeon, right? So, um I don't think that that's going to be a fanless machine and it's obviously going to have a power supply. I think they're they're designing desktop based Macs and portables. I think the portables, like you said, are going to be super thin and super light and not have fans and, and be incredible. But I also think we're going to see stuff that sits on the desk that is going to be jaw dropping. And, and I, again, I, I kind of, one of my predictions is that they are going to show something like that on day one, just to really set the tone of what's possible. I I definitely agree to it. It makes, it would be, um, it would follow the pattern that Apple's taken in the past. And I think they need to show very clearly to the market why they've made this transition. Um, some people have speculated, oh, well, it saves them money and this is all about money. But uh, that would be a bad move uh, if that was the case for users would be very upset because we don't, no one likes transitions. It affects our software and our workflows. So I think what they need to, they're doing this for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think um, they have a huge opportunity to grow their Mac market share, as you and I know. Um, so there's where the money comes in, not from squeezing, um, you know, squeezing the lemon harder, uh, but, but from just growing their market base. And I think this is an opportunity for them to do that. Um, the convergence of their devices and how, with hand handoff is a handoff or handover um you can move a workflow from one device to the next device and, and onward right um i don't know if you saw the the, late, the latest um presentation where they talked about the homepod mini right yeah i was very much in awe about that uh device in that presentation when they're using it as a kind of uh home intercom system and or just just being able to sort of 
load your to tell Siri on your phone in the bathroom that you want to listen to certain music and then it would show you go all the way to the car with Apple Play. Mm-hmm. Um that that kind of stuff real those, those are workflow transformations. I mean in that case it doesn't feel like work, but it is a work that kind of thing is a workflow. It's right. it's doing something that we already do, put our music on in our car, but um it's doing it it's it's removing steps. It's taking friction out of the process. So and and that is absolutely because of the integration of the hardware and the software and kind exactly, of exactly exactly it's kind of understanding of it has some kind of spatial awareness as well kind of layered in there right so it knows where you are um, mm-hmm. and these kind of the the U series chips that they've got where now if you're using AirDrop on your phone and and you want to send something to to your partner and. And it, it points an arrow at that person, like so you know where they are. It's it's really it's interesting, kind of this awareness that these devices are are gaining. Yeah, they're they're basically setting up a little personal Apple network that belongs to you. And right. so if you're near someone, you can airdrop them stuff. Now your devices can talk to other devices, and now one of the devices can be the center of your home and automate all kinds of other devices. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that you can imagine that can be done with this. Um, so I think that is one of their big advantages. Um, but I think raw computing power has to be um, up their sleeve as well. I just don't know to what extent they will take it because it's they're going to have to strike a balance between wanting to boast of the biggest hours that they can put on a new MacBook in terms of how long it can run without a recharge. Um, they're they're going to want to boast about how thin and small it can be. And they're going to want to boast about how much faster something like Photoshop is. And all three of those things need to be balanced out. And it's going to be very interesting to see kind of where they strike that balance. Do you think that there's going to have to be, because I've seen rumors about them kind of replacing what used to be just known as the MacBook, right? It's the thinnest, lightest 12-inch MacBook portable that was always kind of underpowered. You could see them using that as kind of an easy target for same enclosure, super light, ultra thin portable. Now it can do this, right? Which is blows away anything it's been able to do before. Or do you see them going with a new industrial design language to really set these machines apart? I see them tr- definitely trying to establish a uh, a step change between MacBooks and iPads. But I think that processing power may overlap um, because people are doing really amazing stuff with iPads when they want to work with a pencil. So I definitely see that there will um, be an overlap range when it comes to the computer computing power. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the smallest um, MacBook is the MacBook Air, right? And that's it is now, the current yeah. model that's rumored to get one of these new chips. And, you know, at first blush, I thought, well, they might just stick the A4 Bionic as it is right in that machine. And it, it, it's probably much faster than Intel. Um, and that would be a smart thing to do and it would cost them nothing. But I think that that is not what they're going to do. I think they have a specialized chip for that machine and maybe the next MacBook up. But I think when you get to the MacBook Pros and the larger ones in particular, I think we're going to see perhaps another step change in terms of a, a different chip. And, you know, they said when they announced all of this that one of the things that would differentiate Apple Silicon from the other Apple Silicon in their iOS devices 
is that they were going to take advantage of the thermal envelopes in all of the devices. Mm. So what does that mean exactly? You know, we can parse that out and try to speculate what that means because there's a big difference between an iMac on your desktop and its thermal envelope and and a MacBook Air. Right. And I just don't, they're going to want to get some economy of scale. So they're not going to design 10 different processes. They're going to design probably four to six or maybe just four and they will scale megahertz wise. Mm -hmm. Um, Something like that will, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see what they actually release. I kind of feel like they're going to have to make them look different so that, because if I buy a new Apple Silicon Mac, I don't want it to look exactly the same as the last model or the evolution of the current MacBook lineup, um, Mm -hmm. which hasn't changed much over the years, right? I mean, since they've gone to the unibody kind of design for for the laptops, they've They've evolved, but it's been a vi- and and no, I'm not asking them to redesign. I don't think that that would be a good idea. It's kind of like the Porsche 911 to me. It's like it's an evolution of a design over a long period of time, and that makes sense. Um, but at the same time, when you're making a big transition like this, um, we've seen them do it many times on iOS. Right? There's they've gone from big bezels to small bezels. They've gone from rounded to square. Um, they actually have changed the industrial design pretty heavily from generation to generation. If you think back to the iPhone 3GS to the iPhone 4, huge departure. If you think about Mm -hmm. the 4 to the 5, it was a pretty big departure. And now going from the 11 to the 12 with the flat sides like the iPad Pro, we're seeing Mm -hmm. that happen. I, I almost feel like that has to happen on the Mac as well as they kind of take full ownership over this entire platform that they're also going to use this as an opportunity to change how these things look. And I also wonder how that starts to play into the idea of potentially additional cameras, maybe face ID, uh, touch-based Macs, right? Because now with Big Sur and Apple Silicon, they're going to be they have stated that they're going to support all iPhone and iPad apps on the desktop. So that doesn't mean that every Mac they ship is going to be touch enabled, but I could definitely see some of them being like that, right? So that you can use those apps in the way that you use them on these other devices on your Mac now. So I almost feel like they have to change the industrial design by saying that they're going to own this whole platform, or at least they're going to use it as a big opportunity to do that. I hope they do. Yeah. You know, the the idea of touching the MacBook screen because you can now because of the bringing over iOS apps. I, I, I don't know if they will do that. Um, when I spoke to the Shaper CEO um, recently about that, because they used Apple Pencil, um, he made the point that they are already, you know, it would be easy to work on adapting the pencil input to the mouse or to, you know, the touchpad or to the touch bar. As long as there are these points where you could input, you can convert those inputs to those other devices or other surfaces. You know, if you begin to touch the app, the MacBook screen, mm-hmm. it's really become an iPad on some level. I mean, the iPads have wonderful keyboard accessories now with them. And I mean, you look at them and you think, well, why do you even need a laptop anymore? You could <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I, I think, but but the Mac is fundamentally different in that you know the multi window environment, and there's apps on the iPad Pro like Morfolio Trace, which is incredible app to use. There's nothing else like it, 
Mm-hmm. I want to use that on my Mac if that's the machine I have in front of me. Right. And so how do you want to, how do you envision using that on your Mac? Would you want to use it with the Apple Pencil? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would too. So then maybe app, Apple's going to surprise us with some kind of large touch uh, interface surface, like a Wacom tablet kind of thing, where we can use the pencil and there rather than actually on the screen. Because um, a lot of it is about ergonomics and posture. Like where we are with our Macs tend to be, our bodies tend to be in a different position than when we where we are with iPads and iPhones. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I kind of hope, though, that they have like a laptop or like the Surface Studio that we talked about earlier, where the machine is more transformable than like a typical laptop. But it gives the reason why they would do that is so because of the thermal benefits, because of the larger battery benefits, because mm-hmm. of, you know, there's there's additional affordances that that it gives you in that larger enclosure, a larger surface to draw with. Um, you could have it on the couch with you and fold the screen over backwards. And, and you know, I, we've seen these devices before from lots of different brands. It doesn't mean Apple's going to do it. They, you know, Steve Jobs was famous for saying, you know, you're never going to touch a Mac on the screen, right? Like, mm-hmm. but now we, we've, we can't unsee that Surface Studio and how the screen just pulls down in front of you and you can just draw on it. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of those kinds of devices leave Apple users wanting especially in the creative stuff that we do. I'm mm-hmm. not saying it's for everybody, but I could definitely see it for the creative stuff that we're doing where we want to be able to communicate with drawing and I want to do it directly. I don't want to do it indirectly like I'm forced to now if all I have is my Mac with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that those devices do tug at creatives and I've, I've heard that over and over. Um, and, and Steve was such a purist, right? So it, it, you know, the question is, Will Apple, um, without him, still stick to that kind of purest streak, or will they do what Steve said they would never do and and make start making Macs where you begin to touch the screen like an iPad? Right. Yeah, and and I think part of that also is coming from this multi device lifestyle that many people have. But man, mm-hmm. I would love to simplify. <laughs> I certainly would like to have less devices than more devices to kind of choose from it doesn't mean that i want to um i don't necessarily want to give things up to get what i want either like i don't want to have to i don't want the machine to suffer because it's trying to do everything instead of just doing the things that it does really well i don't want to sacrifice that so so maybe that won't happen maybe 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 they will stay all separate and for different reasons and you've got to buy them all um, but I would love some convergence there. Like I said, I can't unsee that Surface Studio and how, you know, it stays on a desk. But when I'm attached to that desk, I get a big drawing surface and I really see huge benefits to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing that I think uh, Apple has kind of proven on the iOS side of things is that these things can, like you were talking about, create their own networks with cellular and be connected, whereas they've never done that on the laptop or the desktop. And so I also see this as an opportunity to start putting cellular into these devices because they do so well with power management, right? I think that's always been something that's kind of, maybe that's why they've never done it with Intel, is that it just doesn't work well enough with the battery to be connected to a network via cellular all the time. I don't know what's holding it back, but that's always been kind of a 
another reason why you have to have multiple devices instead of instead of one to do it all. But I would love to see cellular connection in their at least their ultra portable laptops. That's a great observation. Um, and that would be, you know, a differentiator though. You can get, you know, you can get a cellular card to plug into your laptop. Or you can tether, right? Like tethering is not a big deal, but it's also not as easy. Tethering, you know, the thing with 5G now is our phone is really becoming a kind of router for all their other devices. Yeah. And it's threatening Wi-Fi, honestly, because of the speed. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's like, if you, if you want fast, how often do you turn off Wi-Fi so that you can go faster? It's all exactly. the time. It's more and more. And that, and unless you run pay more through the nose prices to your your cable provider, or, right. you know, in some of these towns, you just have one provider, and you don't even have competition. It's it's awful, but. Um, so 5G is a, a major blessing to the market. I know there's a lot of people who think the technology is damaging to us, but um, yeah, it's in a it's going to put some um, pricing pressure back into the system a little bit, um, and it's also going to make it possible. Um, it's going to make it real possible for us to to do to develop these speedy little personal networks, yeah. which is useful on the job site if you think about it, because. There, there's a range of industrial devices that are showing up on the job sites now from um, little robots that do certain things uh, to drones, of course, have been there for a while. And so I don't, I don't think it will be too much longer before, you know, um, engineers and architects are, have their own little toys, uh, maybe other than a drone, um, to, to do things with. And you, you're right, the, the, the phone um, – the iPhone 12 and LiDAR in these phones is giving us the ability to, um, you know, to, to do things that we've dreamed about doing for a long time. Yeah. I think there's, you know, technologies like the Doxel AI crawler robot. There's the Boston Mm -hmm. Dynamics spot that we're seeing more and more of um, where all of these kind of devices can operate independently, but then you've got to kind of do this, handshake at some point to get the data from one to another or you've got to go through a third-party network to do that there's probably lots of types of jobs out there where that is strictly prohibited right like that data can never get outside of the on-site network so um, i could definitely see that being really useful like you were saying this like architecture engineer construction network that happens on the job site you know a lot of this stuff isn't brought into the job until the job's complete you know mm. different types of services that are you know like networking and and internet and things like that so they have they're forced to set up their own i could definitely see that being a boon to especially remote construction right mm-hmm. yeah absolutely okay so so i know we're running long here so do you I wanted to go through like a quick little section on software predictions during the keynote, because obviously like Apple has never really been one to talk specs, at least on iOS devices. I think they always kind of do on the desktop Macs or the, the the laptops. And I'm sure a lot of the keynote on Tuesday will be about performance, but I, I wanted to like, none of those numbers matter if you can't see it in action. Right. And the way you see it is through software demos. So, um, I have some ideas. I think that they're pretty low-hanging fruit. I don't think there's anything really insightful there. But I was wondering if you had any kind of predictions of what we might see during the keynote in software-wise. 
Well, I'm debating if we will see anything from Autodesk. Um, the one application that is already uh, set up well for them to deliver to the the new Macs would be AutoCAD. Mm. As Andrew Anagos just said uh, in, in an interview piece that we published recently, you know, Autodesk is a truly modern application built for the cloud and mobile devices and basically anywhere any device access. And it has the underpinnings now that give it great fluidity and agility to target other devices. So I, I you know, and they've, dem- they've demoed um, AutoCAD on before Apple, Apple events, usually in the iPad Pro. Right. Uh, where it flies. Um, so I could see them. I could see it happening. I could see an AutoCAD presentation happening. Um, it will really start. To, I, I really begin to wonder what, um, what that would be like because they have AutoCAD for iOS and they have AutoCAD for Intel and they're different. They're different. One is a, obviously the complete fuller version of this of the of the application, mm-hmm. but it would be very easy for them to move the iOS version to the new Macs quickly. Right. I mean, like within two weeks, probably they would have that all done. Moving the Mac version from Intel over, I, I don't know how long that takes, but mm-hmm. I imagine it takes much much longer. Yeah. Um, but I could see Autodesk. I think we're going to see some technical apps and I think we will see a professional 3d um, CAD app of some, some kind. I, I, I can't say too much more than that. I am aware of something that, that is supposedly going to happen, but I don't know the the exact details, but I think we're going to see something exciting and I could definitely see some Adobe products being demoed for sure. That was a big question mark for me. I, I kind of feel like that too, because it's such a huge contingent of users out there and the creative side for sure. Yeah. And there's been a lot of, you know, um, Adobe has been a very important long-term partner to Apple and they've been good partners to each other. So I could see that happening and, you know, the neural engine can do such amazing uh, things and, there's so much opportunity in the world of photography. We've all become very interested in photography and picture taking now because we have these phones yeah. and because they have such amazing abilities. So photography and pro apps um, around photography are, are very important. And I could see definitely some kind of uh, app, app or a few apps demoed uh, from that company. Uh, other, uh, if we're going to see games, I think we can assume, you know, safely assume that we're going to see some really cool games demoed. Uh, and that, that's a big market, right? Cause remember for years and years, you had to be on the PC. If you're, if you wanted to be taken seriously as a gamer, you had to own a PC, but there are some phenomenal games on iOS now. And I think we're going to see the new Macs uh, become very important gaming hardware. Interesting. Uh, I I definitely see that, especially if they deliver the performance. And remember, the thing about Apple's chips is they're delivering the GPU too. I yeah. mean, they yeah. it's not just the the main CPU, but and then and all the accoutrements that go with it, like the neural engine, and all these other things. But you know, they're going to give us custom GPUs right. that are tuned for their metal graphics API. Exactly. Um, so we're going to see some really amazing 
performing apps. I, I'm, I'm convinced. And that's where really the 3D part comes in. Mm-hmm. And like you, I will be missing it live. I will have to yeah. be waiting all day in these meetings thinking, what am I missing? And only to see it, yeah. see it later when I return home. Well, luckily, uh, during this time when everything does stream, streaming first, uh, it's going to be an amazing presentation. I, I have a feeling. I, I kind of wonder, you know, you spoke earlier about these kind of new workflows that have been developed that we don't even really necessarily see as workflows, right? Where hand off between devices and pick up where, where it left off, you know, just by moving from one room to another, it's, or from one location to, into a car, for instance. I, I kind of see them really... I'm hoping that we see something on Tuesday that really plays that up from the creative side of things. So I could definitely see like my, my idea. And I, again, I think this is low hanging fruit is we're going to see final cut pro running on these devices. Um, but with the new developments on iPhone, the, the 12 pro max with its 60 frames per second, HDR video Dolby, like there's a lot of buzzwords there, but like, this is incredible what these cameras can capture and to be able to edit that in real time with no loss, no downtime in transferring. I could just see this thing that used to be a pretty pro workflow becoming just like snap of the fingers, simple um, and super powerful. So I could see things like Final Cut Pro Logic being uh, demoed on these machines, which are really high-end pro-level apps that people make a lot of money, you know, serving clients with, making a lot of the media and listening to uh, uh, that we we hear and see today um, being kind of some of those things that we see on the forefront of, like, the, they're going to use that to show the performance, but they're also going to do it to, I think, develop new ways of working between devices um, so that you really can kind of have this complete studio in a backpack kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. I agree. And there may be some auto AutoCAD, I mean, Autodesk products in the film uh, and video editing products that are mixed into that as well. Um, and definitely music. Uh, no, those, I completely concur with that. I mean, it's going to be a jam-packed session of a lot of presentations with, with tools, software tools. It, it's going to be very exciting. Yeah, and then my my kind of final um, prediction or hope, fingers crossed, is that we would see if there are kind of touch or pencil based or you know input devices on the Mac side that we see something like Procreate or um, Sketchbook from Autodesk, for instance. Um, any anything like that where we really can kind of what used to be limited to a Cintiq could be done now on a Mac without any third-party hardware. I think that would be absolutely um, amazing to, to see finally. Yeah. And I'll just add one final um, hope that I, that I have is that there Rosetta two software, mm. you know, that these machines are so much more powerful that that conversion process um, just runs, um, almost like invisibly you just don't notice the difference between running intel software on these machines that haven't hasn't been converted yet but is being um translated in a rosetta 2.0 background process that it's just seamless um that's my hope because i think you know it will really give people a lot of confidence to just go out and buy these machines and not worry too much about the software they own absolutely they're going to want to buy 
Yeah, I I didn't really think about that, but you are absolutely right that they're going to have to dedicate a, a chunk of time to that alone because that is what's going to convince people to buy the machines immediately. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, okay, so so last last mini topic here, I think before we pull the plug and and do this after the event is um I saw that Mac OS 11.01 is in beta, um, but the Golden Master of 11 isn't out yet. So to me, what that means is they've locked the Golden Master of 11. They've installed it on machines. So I think there are they are actually going to announce shipping Macs on Tuesday uh, with Apple Silicon. What do you think? Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I, I don't. I didn't have a uh, a sense of that before this conversation with you, but. It seems like that there's a strong indication that that could be the case. I could see them shipping by Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving when we have a big shopping weekend. Yeah, I think otherwise, why would they do it now, right? There, there's got to be a reason why they are doing this on November 10th before, you know, arguably some of the largest shopping days of the year. Um, they did say that they expect this this next quarter to be even bigger than last quarter on the Mac side. Uh, so they didn't wow. see that um, as as an anomaly. They saw it as you know building, and I can only imagine that that's because there are going to be some new Macs released. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, that was something they said in their analysis comments. Yes, yeah, they expect okay. it to grow by double digits in percentage points again this wow. quarter. So interesting stuff. Yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a strong sign of confidence then. Yeah. Um, because you would think, you know, there's a lot of people who are tied to their Intel-based Macs because they can run Windows on them, and that's another issue with these machines. Where you know, have, have they worked that out with one of you know Parallels or one of the other parallel competitors to do that? Uh, there, it won't be a boot a boot camp option, from right. what I understand. But right. you know, if they're so fast, they could just simulate that os completely in in the background and it would be very seamless it's interesting right because yeah they, they've said they've actually just said there's no boot camp for windows on the new arm-based macs but right. uh i mean i'm i'm pointing my hand at my my wife's workstation which is in the next room over where she's running revit on boot camp um, because that's the only way that she can and so for the time being, at least, unless the, there is this kind of co-development or this, you know, parallels or VMware is working on something on that side of things, then then we're not going to be upgrading her system. And that would be a shame. But um, right. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, there's, it's a really interesting catch 22 that you mentioned in Revit, because, you know, I, I, I asked uh, Anagos about Revit and these in regard to these machines and you know, he said, you know, they are definitely not ruling out um, pushing Revit to the Mac, but they're not um, ruling in that it will happen either. But if these machines are, you know, look at what they're planning to do with the new Mac Pro. They're trying, they're planning to, according to Bloomberg, um, develop a new version of the Mac Pro that looks more or less like the one we have out there, but smaller I because of these that. new chips. Right. And such a large enclosure allows them to put a lot of, you know, power in there. I mean, they can really go nuts. And if that's the case, that machine could run. Can you imagine running Revit faster in under parallels than um, <laughs> <Then> native <laughs> and native? It's crazy to think about, but it could happen. The other thing is 
if it was running that fast, you would you would be sure to know that Autodesk would be working very hard to to run a native version. I would hope so. I it is sad to say that you know twenty two years into Revit development, whatever it is, eighteen ish years since Autodesk has purchased it, that we've never seen that happen. Um, if this if it happens now, uh, it's both exciting and sad, right? That it took this long for that to happen, but also, I mean, Revit still does have quite a few years ahead of it, so um, hopefully that that does happen. But at the same time, I, I can't imagine it would make up a huge. Uh, segment of their market just because so many people have moved or you know they just gave up and they they, they either move to windows or they they are using another product mm-hmm. well i think i think we have exhausted this i i'm i'm really excited for tuesday and i'm really happy that you took the time today to kind of go through this i think it was it was a great conversation so thanks for for doing that Oh, you're welcome yeah we definitely we definitely killed it on time here uh, <laughs> yeah. spent a lot of time well, I, I, you know, there's so much to talk about. I, like I said, I don't have too many people I can talk to this about. You were the, the at the top of the list. So um, let's watch the event on uh, on Tuesday and get back together and let's talk about what really happened and, and how we think it's going to affect the profession that we love. That sounds great. All right. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks again. And have a, have a good evening. Thanks, Anthony. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.